Movement Rio Media presents A Few Good Physios with Dr. Eric Munoz and Dr. Leonidas Scantolides. You can't handle the truth. What is physical therapy? More research. More research. True therapeutic effect. Join us each week as we discuss current trends in medicine, rehabilitation, and strength and conditioning. The answers are out there. All content is a collaboration between On Point Sports Care and Integrated PT Squared. A Few Good Physios is not medical advice and is used for educational purposes only. If you are having pain and or health-related complaints, please seek out a licensed healthcare professional. Thank you for downloading. Enjoy. All right, this is episode three of A Few Good Physios, and today we're going to be asking the question and doing our best to try to answer or at least begin to talk about it. Where is our industry going? And we're specifically talking about uh, physical therapy, uh, but our unique perspective is our strength and conditioning background, fitness background, and physical therapy. So, yeah, yeah so, uh, so starting off, so, you know, as our background in, in fitness, we're exposed to a lot. We see a lot of different uh, gimmicks and themes and um, people who come up and come up with different systems, and then it kind of crosses over into the rehab industry. So let's talk about some trainers first that we both know. I think we mentioned them a little bit last time. Um, Mike Boyle, um, Greg Cook, that's a big one because... And uh, he is, uh, Greg Cook is a physical therapist and a trainer, and he's the one who started the FMS. Yes, yeah. the FMS, I, I'm not sure exactly when it started, but definitely probably about 18 years ago, I was telling Lee a couple of weeks ago that I remember taking a course with uh, Mr. Cook on the FMS, the, the, the beginning parts of FMS, I guess. And uh, it was interesting to see... Um, how thoughtful his approach was in terms of sc- quickly screening gross um, movement patterns to really, and I think it was very helpful um, as a trainer starting out. Um, and, you know, he had a, a sound reasoning behind what he was trying to do, you know, assess people's movement patterns, um, see where the, the non-optimal patterns are, and then work from there. And I, I think, you know, to this day, I think a lot of people uh, are benefiting from it. Uh, for sure. There we go. Yeah, no, so I, I'm just, uh, just recently, there's been a lot of criticism of the FMS in our industry, in the rehab industry, because now, at this point, since the FMS has been around for a little while, there's been some research on it. And it, initially, it was kind of sold as wow. functional movement screen that can screen you for uh, injury in the future. So if you're not familiar with the FMS, it, 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 it encompasses many different movements, and some would argue that you would never use these movements in, in real sport. Like there's an overhead squat, an inline lunge. Um, you what know, about the bird dog thing? The, the bird dog, yeah. So the test of core stability, the core stability, you have to do a same-side bird dog. So like if you're not familiar with the bird dog, it's on all fours. Let's say if your right arm's out straight, your left leg would be out straight, and you just balance there. So the same side bird dog would be your right arm's out straight, and then your right leg's out straight, and you have to stay balanced. So they're basically timing of that to the push-up. Anyway, so the, the score uh, it, you know, is, is based on how you do on each one of these tasks, and then you come away with, like, are you within the norm of not getting injured? Are you below or above? 
And so most of the current evidence that shows right now doesn't look good. It doesn't look good. It doesn't look good. So my previous <laughs> concept, I think it was helpful um, 19 years ago uh, when I knew nothing, but now Lee's showing me the uh, the, the uh, current research, and it doesn't. I mean, a coin <laughs> a coin toss will be not too far off of uh, FMS. Right. So uh, we're looking at a post from uh, uh, someone who we'll be discussing a little bit later in the talking points. But he's I follow him on social media. His name is Adam Meekins. He's a physical therapist i believe he he works out of the uk he's a uk physical therapist um and he does a lot of different courses the main course that i've seen advertised on social media and on his website when i follow him is the complex shoulder um and he he seems to specialize in shoulder injuries and then also how to rehab it and he's got some unique ways of approaching it. anyways he's he's very heavy on research in a good way, he also is very heavy on uh, our field uh, being involved in strength conditioning, and then he likes to um, kind of make uh, these posts where he's explaining the research in addition to making it a little bit more creative so we can all understand. I guess I guess uh, going back to uh, FMS, um, and even as we, as I started my fitness career and even beginning half of my um, physical therapy career, uh, it, the absolutes of having a test, a quote objective test, and have and saying, well, you need blank blank blank, or you have blank blank blank. Uh, we definitely 19 years ago, I didn't know enough to think that that was a wrong thing. So we, unfortunately, I mean, this is how the fitness industry and I guess the physical therapy in general uh, conduct business, right? They, yeah. they we take a look at something we think to be true. Um, and then we base the whole methodology or treatment or training session based on that. And, I mean, definitely as the days go by, I realize how much uh, nothing really had is very small. There's not a large percentage of things that we could say absolutely about uh, any kind of movement screen, exercise. In some cases, we'll get into it, but even some imaging mm-hmm. uh, that show – Show us some things. We made we make a lot of assumptions based on this picture of time. Right. So yeah, it's it's interesting that um, uh, the good old FMS. Yeah, I mean, this is also too. This is important to know. Like a lot of, I, I remember I posted something a little back a little while back on Instagram about ice, icing, and and it was just a challenge uh, post, meaning that it was a repost from somebody else who who posted about some, but uh, the research on. Uh, icing to decrease inflammation. Now it's a kind of a false thing. And I got some response back saying, like, you know, you shouldn't go crazy if you see one research article to show this. And I tried to explain this individual. This wasn't me going crazy, number one. It was just me posting about it saying, like, this is good to examine Mm -hmm. because this is challenging our current beliefs. And the other thing is this is not just one research article. This is like a review of the literature from, like, the 1970s all the way up until now. And it was a really... um, thorough review of everything and it gave scientific evidence to show that there was more neuropraxia going on rather than anti-inflammation and the secondary um, uh, secondary swelling things like that so um, so with this like you know looking at the research about it we're not trying to throw it away or say like now we're not going to use it it's more like it, it might not do what we thought originally thought it was doing now we could use it as baseline for how well you're doing in terms of movement. Not to say, like, if you do poorly in this, you're going to get injured. It's more like now you've improved your overhead squat, you've improved your inline lunge, you've improved your ability to do the same side 
bird dog, and this can just be your improvement on movement skill. Right. It could be as plain and simple as that. And I think it's it would be a great baseline thing on it. I know some gyms use it as a baseline, and then they re- reassess every six right. weeks, eight weeks. And I think for general, for the general public that's looking to work on, let's say, some overhead squatting, some lunging, mm-hmm. some core stability work, mm-hmm. um, it, it would be a baseline. But I think in making those assessments, you really have to get specific to um, – to who you're working with, right? So if you're looking at, you know, a grandma, a, a grandmother, let's say that's about 75 years old, and her main, you know, concern is um, independence, mm-hmm. um, getting from A to B, um, taking her yoga class, watching her grandchildren, it's going to be a little different. She's not going to need to go for a one rep snatch <laughs> test, you know, it's not going to, or one In rep. Line lunge. Right. So, I mean, and then, then you take someone, let's say that's, um, across, you know, in, a CrossFit, um, person that takes CrossFit, mm-hmm. uh, say the other word, um, um, you, you would also, you know, look, you look at their specific, what, what are they having issues with? Um, uh, and I guess the way the future, I, I hope in the near future, we will have more specific tests and measures according to people's movement practices yeah. you know, and make it more specific. Yeah. I mean, it, it, I think it's important to keep uh, testing the waters with these things because these things come come and go and, and you want to almost combine what's best for the individual and maybe you'll find the different tests for each, each one. Um, continuing on with other uh, movement systems that kind of spill over into rehab, there's, there's been all these... Um, uh, looking at uh, this guy named Ido Portel. Cool stuff. Yeah, I mean, I think he's most he's in the general public for Conor McGregor. He is he was training Conor Conor McGregor quite a bit before the, the his big fights, and a lot of people that again these are all just things that I read online, and I'm not um, not totally sure this is happening all the time, but uh, people comment on. His training methods, if you watch these videos, it looks like they're not doing anything. They're just bouncing around, and they're doing all these coordination drills, things like that. So a lot of people think it's a joke, and it's not a joke. If you understand movement skill, it's, you know, from my understanding of uh, his method, you're, you're combining um, these all of these variables in terms of uh, what, what happened in sport. So let's say if you have an open environment, and you have all these things coming at you at once, and you have to react to it, and then you have to do whatever that skill is in those reactions. So if you have to do that over and over again, underneath all these different conditions, you're going to improve that movement skill. And so for a mixed martial artist, it has to do with a lot of standing and and reacting to punches and dodging and then counter-punching, counter-kicking, grappling, getting down to the ground, getting back up, all these other things. So... Um, I, I think what his movement system was trying to do for Connor was to improve all that and make it very efficient, make it so it's subconscious. He doesn't even have to think about it to do it and uh, also make it stronger. So you have to do all these other base strength exercises, like your ability to hang, your ability to have yourself upside down, hold your own body weight, uh, propel your own body weight through air and everything like that. So, so novelty. I mean, when I, I don't – you put me on to – Mr. Portal, and um, and I've definitely seen it in the fitness industry. Um, there's a handful of people that I think this guy, I'm not sure of his name, but he rented mm. space from Jay, I think I told you, and had about 100 people. Oh, um, and you did a seminar? Or did a seminar. It might have been one of 
his um oh yeah yeah dis- i remember disciples. Talking about yeah. That. yeah but um to my understanding it's just a novel move well not not getting used to novel movement yeah, <laughs> of, yeah. of any sort and being comfortable with that and being relaxed with it and but i see a lot of it you know as a as a bit of a trend um some of these systems that leo go into probably a lot of that stuff i'm seeing as well but the crawling the rolling mm-hmm. the walking on the hand, you know, the little cartwheel movements. Um, you see that a lot, you know, at the uh, at a couple of places that I train. Mm. And it's pretty cool to see how that shifted from 20 years ago where it was like selectorized machinery. <laughs> the extension, hamstring curls. Yeah, hamstring curls. We're going to do this into the three times 10, and you can't uh, do the 10th one. Uh. Yeah, so it, that methodology, although, <clears throat> you know, it, people still... There's some benefit to that stuff, but not not. It shouldn't be the absolute no, primary. And again, going back to specificity, if you have a fighter like Connor and you're getting him to do hamstring curls and leg extensions, no, you know, that's not, yeah. that, that's not going to really carry over to what he wants to get done. I find really interesting. This is as like a general theme. Ido Portel, and we've talked about Andrew Spina, and we'll go into a little bit more in depth today. But all these new movement systems that are spilling over into rehab, they have this common theme. So, in when we were in school. Um, we're, we were subject in learning about um, all the basic uh, rehab principles to help someone come back from an injury. And they were the same in the sense that, let's say, an ankle sprain. We would train this person, all right, you've in- injured your ankle because you had an excessive, uh, you, you rolled it. You went into plantar flexion and you inverted your ankle and it tore the ligaments on the outside. So we're going to do the opposite. We're going to strengthen the everters and the dorsiflexors. We're going to get your accessory motion and your, your subtalar joint improved and all these other accessory motions. But we would never have them do that again. We would actually give them what we'd be trained to do, would give them instruction on how to avoid plantar flexion and inversion. But these systems, <laughs> and it's amazing. I mean, when 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 don't do it, right? Yeah, Stay we, away. be careful, be careful. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I hear, unfortunately, I hear that today still from as I've spoke about before the environment that I'm in part time. But um, we won't we won't go too depth in depth to that. We already did that. But <laughs> um, the but so these these movement systems now, like Ido Patel and Andrea Spina, are doing the opposite. You've injured your ankle in that position. There was a reason why you injured your ankle because y- your joints, your muscles, your tissues, your ligaments they could not sustain that position without without breaking. So after the initial rehab process and you get the uh, acute inflammatory stage down, then you start to train into that injury. So there's a great video online if you look up Ido Portel. Uh, he tries to explain this concept to a group of people about ankle sprains. And he first shows uh, his ability to go up on both ankles on the outside. So he's, he, if you could imagine, he's standing and he's kind of on the blades of his foot and he's just standing there. And he's like, we have to be able to tolerate. And he kind of walks back and forth. Then he jumps and slams both of his blades of his feet into the ground. And everybody gasps like everyone's like oh my god like because i'm assuming it was like a bunch of trainers or a bunch of pts and they're like that's like the worst thing you could do you're gonna definitely have it 200 ankles and he's like this is ridiculous like my ankles can do this because i've trained for it and they're absolutely right 
this injury that you would go through would keep happening because you didn't train yourself to go into that injury. Position. Yeah. Into that position. So, I mean, th- that's what I love about these new movement systems and how they're carrying over into our, our field and rehab because now it's opening our mind to, to that and it's given us a system to do it in. But I guess w- not everybody's catching on. We're unfortunately a small percentage of PTs who are actually getting into this. And in the clinic that I work, I've done my hardest to to say like this is a really great thing to go but um uh, go to and learn about but unfortunately a lot of people just are not into it because they they hear they don't recognize the name they see that it's not a physical therapy cert or whatever they're just like oh that's training so um it, it's i think it's it's almost imperative at this point because these these trainers these people are are the only ones right now who are uh, doing this in a popular way and they have a great system where you can start doing that with patients. I clearly now this is the you know for the physical therapists that don't see the value in um, in trying to gather information from let's say the fitness community, um, they will be left behind. I mean, just mm-hmm. um, you know, case in point, the last five years, five to as a PT, as all these new systems have come into at least in the New York City training community. I've seen many trainers who are treating patients. And what I mean by that is I hear the, con- the, the conversation, and the conversation is, oh, I've been in pain for a couple of months. I saw a physical therapist. They put ice on me. Ultrasound. They have me doing these band exercises. And then the trainer is telling them, is, the trainer is explaining things quite well in terms of, hey, we have to take a look not just at your ankle. we got to take a look at your hip. we got to see how you're moving. You're you know, you're not walking off. I mean, so you have certain trainers at this moment that are doing gait assessment. I mean, they they're miss, they may be missing some critical fundamental principles, but at the same token, look out, physical therapists, because mm. trainers are, uh, there are certain trainers that will be taking uh, some of the market. You know, and, and mm. here in New York City, people want to pay for, people will pay a premium for any, for a, mm. um, for value, for a service. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, sorry to go off on a tangent no, there, no. but I think um, so these new movement systems have not only benefited people that are looking to improve their fitness or, in Connor's case, you know, working very specifically toward a, a sport goal, mm-hmm. um, they're actually seeping into a quasi-rehab <laughs> um, f- place where, you know, it's out of the system but they're becoming the the go-to person. Yeah, and uh, Spina Andrew Spina under his FRC system, he has a course called FRA, and that is functional range. I think it's functional range functional range assessment. That changes the game, in my opinion. You you have everybody taking that course. You got trainers, you got PTs, and, and if a trainer is able to sit there and have a two day course. Where they're just they're you know he has prerequisites before you take FRA I believe mm. that you have to do the FRC mobility specialist course first. Then you have basically someone who might be looking. You have a trainer who who can look at somebody and do a basic assessment and be like, all right, this is what we're going to move uh, work on for your movement systems and improve your your uh, your strength at your ankle because now we're looking at your hip and your trunk or whatever it may be. And I, I think that does change the game, and it will leave certain physical therapists who want to live in 1985 behind. <laughs> <laughs> behind, behind. I mean, it's, it's uh, the split 
the split that uh, Lee and I always talk about. It, it's it's a it's happening faster than I thought. Mm. Um, but more and more trainers I see doing kind of quasi train. And again, I mean, there's no we've discussed the compliance police. There's nobody mm. uh, from the state walking around saying, "Hey, you're not a physical therapist." Get they're doing release. They're doing active release. Yeah, they're doing you know so. Uh, to all the therapists that you know want to stay within the therapy world, that's fine. But realize that there's a lot of stuff moving around you, um, mm-hmm. and yeah. I think it's moving faster than we thought because this mindset of uh, you brought it up in terms of this high, uh, high value care, but also trainer versus PT. So if a uh, um, you know Joe Schmo goes to, uh, I'm going to go get a trainer. I'm going to pay this amount of money. They don't really think twice about like, all right, that's hundred fifty dollars an hour, two hundred dollars an hour. Some trainers I know, three hundred dollars an hour. They don't think twice about uh, paying that. Hmm. Maybe twice a week, maybe once a week, maybe once a month, whatever it is. I had this guy the, uh, the other day who could not stop talking about the fact that th- they are coming to this clinic because it's a network, and they stopped going to their other physical therapist because. He, they had been seeing this other physical therapist for years, apparently, and he was in network, and then all of a sudden he changed to add a network, and he kept saying, he brought it up, I don't know, maybe a dozen times, and he kept mm-hmm. saying the price every time he brought it up. And I, it, to me, I didn't I didn't uh, continue to, to talk to him about it. I was trying to... Um, move on. <laughs> move on and also like examine this patient because this is... Uh, we only have 60 minutes, and technically that's a lot less because, it, uh, you know, after they fill <laughs> oh, yeah. out the paperwork and get they dressed. get changed, if we're probably getting 40 minutes max. And then never mind talking about the insurance because they usually will – they want to talk about insurance, especially if you're sh- seeing them under insurance because they get a lot of misinformation. They're like, you need referral, you need prescription, you need this. And so they're, they're scared they 60 shitless. visits. They have six. You got 20 visits. You got 18 visits. Some people think they don't even have that visit. They're like, I don't know if this is going to be covered. If you write your note, <laughs> you have to send it out. No, man, this is covered. Like, I'm a, I'm a direct access physical therapy. That's number one. There's no way in hell you're not going to get covered for this first visit. But, uh, but it, it blew my mind. I'm like, you know, let's, you know, let's move on. We can, well, I'm not charging $250. You're using your insurance. And it seems to be making you upset, you know, that this is this this was the case. And but we're here now and let's let's have a conversation. But I guess my point is, is that there was this huge go between like, how dare that physical therapist charge that amount of money? I mean, but in terms of high value care, there's obviously a reason why this individual went out of network and I'm good for whoever that was. I have no idea who they are. I think that is, is a, that's the best thing a physical therapist could ever do because they actually get a, a fraction of their value in that treatment. Fraction of value, yep. I, the amount of information that a, a patient obtains in, uh, a, obviously, we're, we're talking about a percentage of physical therapists who who approach physical therapy in an intelligent way and in a in research way and, and also something with um, good intent and uh, with good bedside manner. The amount of the kind of information they're going to get is going to save that patient's tens of thousands of dollars. I, I guarantee, it. and there is research to back that up. The fact that they they seek conservative management under the high value care, they're not going to seek these other low value cares that either cost a lot of money or get surgeries that are now uh, been proven to be no better than sham surgeries. 
Uh, we're talking about meniscal surgery, subacromal decompressions, lumbar fusion. 20, 30, 40, 50, 60,000 dollars for the stuff that Lee just mentioned. Yeah. And someone told me that's another the, the amount of it, I was mentored by a, one of the top trainers maybe 15, 20 years ago and I remember him telling me that just remember what you do and this goes for physical therapy or as a fitness as a trainer health is priceless mm-hmm. wellness is priceless so if if people start to i mean obviously there's a cost to everything and, mm-hmm. and we, but at the same token if people don't value themselves you know if they don't and then that's not a client or patient you want to be working with you know th- right. and as lee said you know in in that environment uh, in that environment people are often concerned of what is owed to them, what do they deserve, What, and it kind of takes away from what's actually what's important, happening. what's happening. I mm-hmm. mean, you're talking about, like you said, this guy's talking about insurance in-network, out-of-network. He's wasting his in-network time, which is limited. <laughs> so, um, uh, And yeah. it, it was changing the theme of what we were working on. I mean, now it was more like diffuse, diffuse, diffuse. Uh, let's get back to what's going on with you. And all right, now I have to do it again. All right, diffuse, diffuse, diffuse. How much is this going to cost? Right. <laughs> I got, I, you know, and, and, you know, simple questions came back completely not uh, interpreted. You know, I had to repeat. Anyway, so it, 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 it turns into a big mess. It's, it's someone, it's individuals who get in their own way. And that's a very common thing. Obviously, we talked about this before. They're in pain. They're not happy. They're there. And so that that's just our job, to do this. And I guess the, the thing is that we, we, what we talk about is this mindset has to shift in the sense that, the more people learn about what it is that we could offer in a high-value sense, they might be able to start to shift that mind. So uh, training, if you want to pay $250 per hour, that's absolutely fine, especially if you're seeing someone uh, who you trust and you feel is going to help you and who is educated and who does have good intentions. That's all good. On the other side of that, it's it's also important to see that uh, physical therapists who engage in that same high-value uh, mindset and intent and education, they're not looking to charge that amount of money because they're not going to buy Mercedes-Benz with it. They, uh, I, I don't know. I Eric and I have had this conversation. There's actually, I'll never forget one of the <laughs> I laugh at myself because it was such a weird thought to go through my head. I, I had a patient who's both both of their parents, and he was, he was our, uh, no, he was in his 20s. Both of his parents were physical therapists, and in my head, I I'd like I started to do this in my head because oh, I was like, "Congratulations to those two physical therapists who made it, right. had children, and had the successful child to sit in front of me who had right. like a job and everything." And the reason why I thought that I was like, "I've I've met so many kids of doctors and physicians, and you know they were very well off, and I had never met anybody who had, had you know who were both in the physical they therapy world and survived through physical therapy who are still doing physical therapy had children so to me that was like a bump up in life like meaning that they went from one life event to another successfully they didn't go like oh they were physical therapists and then they married a a lawyer they married a doctor and they stopped doing physical therapy or they married a finance individual whatever it was they were successful in their industry and i i think that still can happen but you usually have to go uh in the unnatural way meaning like you're not going to be working in a in you, network clinic you got to cr- well words from my jujitsu class yeah. create your own path yes. the only way that um you can make it um 
You can't make it lucrative. Well, you could make, not even lucrative. The only way you could thrive is really on your own or in conjunction with the group that that has that in mind. Um, And again, coming back to value. um, Yeah, because if you just coming out of school or forget about being in school, if you're within any large system, um, there will be ceilings. You know, mm-hmm. there's ceilings, and, and more so than ever, due to the increase of overhead costs, which is, you know, rent, real estate, um, health care. <laughs> health care, I mean, uh, as a health care company, uh, often health care companies don't provide great health care. I mean, when that goes from the small mom-and-pop clinic all the way up. <laughs> to uh, larger institutions, corporate entities. Yes, cor- that you know that that don't offer uh, great benefit because they're costly, right? right. But um, going out on your own or creating your own path and and kind of figuring out. I mean, I, I'm um, going through this myself, and it's not. It's definitely not easy, and it's not. It's it's not something that there's a rule book for. There's not uh, clear instruction. You kind of have to. It's trial and error. It's it's um, mitigating risk. Um, but yeah, I don't want to go off on a tangent. No, but um, no. but no, it's 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 possible. And I think we've we've seen. Wow, Lee and I have been fortunate enough to seen see um, how it's possible. Yeah. And it's really kind of, I think the fundamental is is what Lee and I this whole podcast is based off of is really education mm-hmm. and crossing over and, and taking information from everywhere, whether mm-hmm. that's neuroscience, fitness, MMA, mm-hmm. you name it. I think um, Lee and I try to incorporate all of that when working with an individual. But it takes a clear mind to do that. And I have to admit that in, in past situations, you know, um, you get your environment sometimes dictates the tools you use. Yeah. Um, and it's not, you know, it's not a, in some ca- in most cases, it's not mandatory. It's just a survival mechanism. And to all those therapists that are working at high volume clinics, you know, five people, four people an hour, even three people an hour is relatively high. Yeah. You know, it, it's, you know, just remember who's in front of you. They're the yeah. person's in front of you that needs, that needs help. They're there mm-hmm. for a reason most times. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's true. I mean, and, and the fact that, um, the uh, in terms of the rate, uh, you know, uh, just a quick uh, reboot on the rate. Like, why why do out of network physical therapists or cash therapists charge a certain amount of rate? So there is there's something called a usual and customary rate. Yes, and I I believe that was it's it's uh, set by CMS or the the individuals who head up the Medicare um, uh, field and. Yeah. So let, let's say even in an in-network environment, when the uh, the, uh, the billing goes out, it's typically going to be around I don't know three you know, three hundred dollars, maybe four hundred dollars. Now like, that yeah, somewhere in that ballpark, anywhere from yeah, I would say about three to four. That being said, that reasonable and customary rate also links up to um, is it reasonable at the the, the, the ge- geographical area right so we're talking what we're talking about is midtown new york new york city manhattan Mm -hmm. and uh that reasonable and customary rate is very different i'm sure from you know kansas ohio Ohio, kansas i'm I'm not to throw you guys yeah sorry we went to the uh the middle specifics (laughs) yes but any metro any major area that has the amount of wealth of uh 
let's say, New York City. So we are definitely uh, somewhat um, – we're in our own country. Right. But that being said, <laughs> that being said, there is reasonable customer, and it's usually set by CMS. Right. And insurance companies usually are in tandem with that. Uh, I'm not up on the current state of affairs, but I know the CMS did – a lot of stuff got pushed through this year to – to change things. So yeah. uh, look out for changes. I think um, I was talking to a billing consultant of mine, and <laughs> he had to get retrained because Medicare changed a little, supposedly. I, yeah. I'm, I'm <laughs> we're, not go, we're not going to go into that. No, but, I mean, but, like, but, yeah. it's just a mess, man. I mean, uh, we, we, uh, I won't go into too much detail, but the amount of particulars that we have to do for a Medicare patient is in. Same in terms of documentation, in terms of what information we need, it's it's over and above something that is unnecessary for what we do, and it's it goes beyond basic info. I mean, it just it it proves to me that they there's someone there on the inside, a group of people on the inside that definitely are looking to almost uh, deter this time with the patient that oh, yeah. to do what we could do the benefit the bet well i i think um not even to the fully defend them but i will say that there are many people unfortunately many providers i don't even want to say that but they at these are providers mm. that abuse the system these are not individuals <laughs> individuals that have abused and it's fraud it's illegal right. and unfortunately we all pay the price for this illegal activity uh, and what I mean by that is uh, when insurance companies, Medicare gets defrauded, that cost gets passed along to us as as a few good physios. <laughs> um, and also, unfortunately, the, the patient, the patient is, is not only paying um, monetarily, which they've paid into Medicare, right? Most of the people Most are using it. Um, <clears throat> but they're paying... Um, they're paying for lack of quality, which 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 is a sad thing. Yeah. But um, all of these regulations around you know documentation above and beyond what's actually useful to anybody mm. um, that has to that has to change as well. And again, get the get the bad apples out of the system. And I think that will that will be happening very shortly. And I think that is, uh, I think I think I'm, I'm think mm. that CMS. I think the they would like to try to quote get value care. What was it they they're trying to get? What the what the hell they were trying to do? They were trying to um, Medicare was trying to reward those with quote positive outcomes, and that's a that's another joke because people thing that's that, a, who reports that they had a horrible outcome. You know, it, not only that they, they still don't know how to measure those things. They, right, right, they, right. they you've got all these numbers, people all over the way. Like, we, and the reason why Eric and I have a really good experience with this because they'll bring in outside people who, to run these numbers. They have even no idea where to start. They want to use these outcome measures to mer- measure like how well this person did, but those outcome measures are extremely flaw- flawed because. Most of those things, I, I have so many patients when they feel that they get really angry. They're just like, "What? What is this? Does, first of all, this doesn't even make any sense. Like, this doesn't relate. I don't do this. Right? This doesn't <laughs> relate to me. This doesn't make any sense. Th- what outcome measure is useful right now are those fear outcome measures. So fear avoidance behavior. The, uh, the is like a Tampa fear one. All these other ones. Those are helpful because those give you an idea. Those have been highly correlated with successful treatments. Those have been highly correlated for return to work, 
all these other things. So, you know, there was a recent research article that came out that, um, you know, remember when we were studying for the OCS, the, mm. the start back keel? Yes. Uh, that actually just got uh, reviewed and actually showed that it's oh. not as helpful as once thought and it was under heavy work screen. related the uh, return to work i think i uh, i think it start was back to start it's something to, to get back into what's the likelihood of them coming back to work correct yeah yeah right. so in it and it, it it didn't do well it, it, right. it there was other things because it didn't include certain things like fear avoidance um and and other things and how you feel about your injury it's not necessarily all right i, I can wash my hair and i can put on a coat yeah that's all great the, p- patients don't care about that they they most of them i shouldn't say all but a lot of patients like there's a provider that i see all the time it, he when he when their patient comes in he's so attached to writing the note on time, the patient he, he tells the patient to go sit on the table, and there's a computer that everyone's supposed to see the schedule on, and he'll jump to that computer, and the ba- his back is facing the patient, and he's at, he's yelling like three tables, "How's your shoulder today? Are you able to wash your hair?" And he, and, and he's not he's not even looking at the patient. That's not how you no, interview that's, that's a, a patient. That's actually a pet peeve of mine because oh. you just lost ninety percent of what treatment is, and he 90%. he doesn't care. He, uh, the, I mean, uh, not to go yeah, off, yeah. it's um that stuff like that that's what that that's what's reinforced when we have to do this this uh, overly intricate really unnecessary focus on the documentation this is what happens right. because then you have this neurosis that gets created by the therapist that they think that this is all this is everything don't get me wrong uh, documentation is needed absolutely we have to figure out how that patient's feeling today what did we do what's our assessment what's our plan sure we don't have to have this excessive compulsive relation to this documentation (laughs) no i mean i've I've seen it you know that was definitely one of my um yeah a a pet peeve of mine that uh, you know i'd see a I'd see this interaction between a therapist and a new patient, and the therapist is on an iPad, and they're typing, how do you feel? You know, and, and you could see the patient checking out, and the, the patient little by little pulling away, closing yes. up, closing yeah. up, closing up, like, what's going on? And, um, yeah, I mean, you just lost. You just lost that whole connection. I mean, mm-hmm. so, yeah, this neurosis that occurs with documentation, I mean, it's... Um, it, it becomes a focus too much. Yeah, that's... it really does. Really does. I mean, I, but... I used to get myself in a, a lot of trouble, and I'm probably right now in the same situation where, you know, I may not put enough focus on, on that. But it, the flip side of it, and I know many therapists who I work closely with, uh, really got spend extra time with patients when they should have been doing documentation. Yeah, and and it, they're attempting to do the right thing, but what you see is burnout. You see people now. And in efforts to try to help somebody, they actually hurt themselves. And then yeah. long term, that burnt out therapist now delivers less than uh, low value care. Low value care. And I've seen that. I've seen the increase of that, that burnout uh, task, whatever they may be, might be differences in what the uh, company is requiring for documentation, maybe my additional tasks that the company wants you to do. Maybe all these other things that have nothing to do with what you're doing, and it keeps piling on. So now you get all of a sudden the um, the Graston tool comes out. All of a sudden the <laughs> ultrasound thing comes out. And they don't want to work it. They don't want to communicate with the patient. They want they don't want to find out 
uh, they don't want to put energy in each treatment because they know they have to see 10 to 20 patients in a day right. and write 10 to 20 notes, notes. in a day. And Insane. and those notes could, if you want to calculate it, depending on the EMR that you're using, it could last from five minutes per note all the way up to 30 minutes per note. So if mm-hmm. you do the math and you do the calculations of how much crap that you're doing in a week, that's and you're, the the salary you're getting, you're not you're not getting paid like a salary that you can go out and have dinner almost every night with. You're getting a salary that you can maybe have a vacation once a year. Maybe. Right, right, right maybe. <laughs> well, that, that co- again, it goes back to um, ther- back to our first podcast that um, within the physical therapy industry, other entities are now controlling the workflow. Mm. The, the, what, the identity, really, of a physical therapist. Um, so, where, you know. Yeah, yeah no, uh, uh, to, sorry to interrupt, no. but like to... To ask the question again, where is the industry going? I think on our perspective, if you take this situation that we're uh, obviously pointing out in negative ways, but we'll, we'll go to the positives. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> the, these situations, the idea is to deliver high-value care, right? Obviously, things have to change within the system, and that's going to take a while. But I, what we're seeing right now right out of school is there's more people who want to do that, which is great. Yes. And to do that, we do have to see less people per day. We we have to. There's there's no if ands or buts about it. I would even argue, you know, a high va- uh, high volume clinic is anywhere between uh, at a minimum ten patients a day, but all the way up to eighteen twenty patients right. per day. Uh, a at a network place, you will see about eight patients a day, maybe seven. Um, and I would actually argue cut that in half. I I, I think oh, I would concur. <laughs> four four three to four patients a day, where you deliver that amount of education and you allow yourself to you allow the patient to have that much access to you outside like there's Correct. we got That's emails we got telephones we got texts we got everything that is imperative and then you the amount of times that you're going to see that patient is going to be very low you, instead yes. of the 16 visits per condition you should be able to see maybe six times at most, right. if not four times, maybe even a couple. I've had a patient. I have had patients who had serious injuries. I've seen twice, and I keep in contact with them throughout the year. And the years have gone past. I, I haven't lost touch with them, and I, I know exactly where they are with their injury because I, I bug them. How how's your knee feeling? Are you still running thirteen miles? Are you back to competition? Yes, that's great. Like all these things, it's because you give them the education. Obviously, they're open to it. They uh, they receive it well and then they execute it. That that can happen. That can happen over and over again. Obviously, there's there's certain percentages of patients that they're going to have different conditions and maybe a bit more serious. You have to spend more time with them. But that system could work. There was actually an article that was circulating around. I think I sent it to you. Um, it was crazy. It was by <laughs> written from this guy. Um, he he was writing about the. Um, how I think we need to, I think we need to take a look at our our yeah from Goldman Sachs this analyst. Oh, that was wild. It was crazy. That he, was wild. That, I read that. That was actually really sad. Yeah, and it's uh, it was posted by uh, a really good friend of my colleague, um, who uh, co-owns this uh, clinic called Match Fit Performance, and he was asking you know all these whoever he posted it to what did you guys think and i thought it was terrible uh, the title of it goldman sachs analyst questioned whether curing patients is good for business and this was posted uh looks like friday on the website gizmodo 
Um, trying to look at the date. What's today? Today's Tuesday, so it's Friday. It was uh, it was thirteenth, so April thirteenth. Um, oh, Gizmo Genetics. Yeah, it was it was basically with with genetic testing and and um, and genetic therapies. You know, we could wipe out certain diseases, all of which um, CRISPR, at, right? They yeah, talked about CRISPR. Yeah. yeah, all of which have um, all of these chronic diseases that have. Uh, industries built around medicating these patients, whether it's, you know, to decrease the progression or to manage some of their symptoms. But basically, you know, the analyst is saying, hey, this this gene stuff, not, you know, we if we cure stuff, it's not good for business. I mean, I personally, on a physical, I think that's horrible. Yeah. Um, it's, it's really an ethical, it comes down to a moral and ethical thing where imagine you know a person could get better I, it's crazy. That's it's, that's it's insane. such a weird thing to think about. But it, I guess it's strange for me and Eric because we're we're so well. Number one, our our knowledge of medicine and our application of it is completely contrary to that. Right. We want to get someone as better, better as quickly as possible. In, I don't want to say that word. Don't 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 <laughs> use that hook. Well, you we'll be creative. You know I'm what I'm sorry, saying? Yeah. <laughs> no, I was gonna, I no, 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 no. I know. I need to. <laughs> I didn't want to. I, know, I was going to say. I almost said it. I almost said it. <laughs> I don't want to use the slogan, but yes, getting people um, improving their health improving, very well, improving their health, <laughs> and most importantly, empowering them to help yes. themselves. Self-efficacy that that has been proven time and time again, and it's nothing. Uh, it's not like magical. It's it's if if you if one wants to sit down and think about anything, if they feel um, they if they have some self-efficacy for that, right? They're obviously not going to fall into trouble in the future with it. And th- this, I think this whole question that this guy posed is exactly what we talked about last time. This whole idea that they have this frame of mind, transaction-based business versus a relationship-based business. This guy's thinking transactions. That's all he's thinking about. Like, you know, each each thing, every prescription that gets filled or every medication that gets sent out. Now, that, now, that being said, one has to one has to make a living, but I do believe... One can make a living with not dispelling fear Correct. into patients or, say, or saying, well, this person, we're going to need to, I'm going to probably, this is going to be a three-month thing. You know, and I mean, we every day we get the question, how long, how long is this going to take? And, mm-hmm. and you know, my, my, the, my go-to answer is that the whole depends, you know. And, it, and, and you ask yourself, you know, whether it's fitness or in um, physical therapy. So in the fitness realm, it's like, how long is it going to take for a blank, for me to lose 10 pounds or mm. for me to be in shape or for me to be able to do run a marathon or whatever it is. And again, in fitness or in physical therapy, it depends. You know, it depends mm-hmm. on a lot of different factors. Um, how long has it taken you to get out of shape? Have you ever been in shape? Have right. you, do you? But whether it's physical therapy or, or fitness – um, there has to be a level of discipline. I think Lee and I could attest, and I didn't realize this. Adam, Saturday night, I met up with a friend of mine. My my ex, I've talked about this guy. My ex next door neighbor, right? What? My my next door neighbor, my uh, boy Sean, right? And uh, we were talking about, you know, we we're talking about growing up. And he was like, you know, I'm I'm proud of you, where you've come from. And I was like, what do you think? I said, why? Why the difference between all of us? And he was like, mm. he was like discipline. Mm-hmm. 
discipline, the ability to kind of know when to pull out, when to say, no, guys, I'm not going to hang out. I got to go study. And, and I, at the time, I was ridiculed for it. Mm-hmm. But going back to patience, you know, instilling instilling that discipline within the patient saying, hey, it's going to take you 10 minutes a day. You're going to have to do X, Y. You should do X, Y, and Z. Mm-hmm. When you do feel pain, ask yourself what position you're in, what activity you're in. Are you breathing? All these little tips and tricks that we give um, our, our patients and clients. Mm-hmm. But I think essentially we're passing on this discipline. Yes. And and, and it goes back into helping themselves. Right. These management skills, these self-management skills that we uh, we engage in every day and we're trying to improve every day with nonstop. It's never ending. It's this evolution of... All right, now um, you know we've achieved this goal. We're going to go to the next thing, and we want to prove this about ourselves. We want to learn about this. Same thing goes for your health. And I've I've gotten a lot of um, there's a funny phrase that a lot of people poo-poo on my methods. Right, right, right. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's because yeah. you know there's uh, uh, you know just because I don't sit there and you talk to everybody and try to get everybody to to do these things and i just go about my way every day and i'll never forget a comment that someone made to me i literally had i think i had 40 minutes i you know i, I train in the morning i, I have a couple clients like mm-hmm. six thirty-eight. i'm at the clinic part-time and then my next patient was in 90 minutes right and at the clinic you have access to kettlebells a treadmill whatever and sometimes I'll go through a workout if I don't have to do documentation. <laughs> um, so I, I did a really hard workout one day. I'll never forget it. And there was uh, a worker there, a colleague worker, and they had this most smug look on their face. They're like, oh, I wish I had the motivation to do that. And I'm just like, I don't – if you don't care about your health, don't don't try to attack me with that passive aggressiveness. But, like, no. it's just – this is I something – I know what that was. Oh, and I was like – I, I just wanted to say to this person, obviously I didn't. I just wanted to go off and be like, you obviously don't care about your health. You don't care about That's why you're not doing it. It had nothing to do about motivation. It had to do about you know what you could discipline. do with it. discipline with that time. Yeah. And this is something that it never ends. It, it, you think I wanted to do that? No, I'd, I'd rather go get an egg and cheese sandwich and sit on my ass <laughs> and go watch YouTube videos. And I'd rather do that. That oh, would be man. my preferred activity. But I knew that I had a huge day ahead of me. I had... Whatever, how many patients? Sometimes 17 patients. And, and I knew at the end of that day, I'm not going to be able to do an exercise. I'm not going to be able to have that amount of time to exercise. So that was my time during the day. I knew how healthy it was for me to ex- exercise and what I feel like afterwards. And I wanted to be my best for my patients. Mm-hmm. I wanted to go in there with energy. I wanted to go in, in there with excitement and, and try to help people and motivate people. And so, and that's thing. what exercise, that's what movement does in general. I mean, you know, Lee's put me onto the uh, kettlebell methodology, a strong mm-hmm. first, and mm-hmm. it's been uh, it's been really cool to know that you know I had a mindset that if I I used to have a mindset years ago that if I don't have X amount of time, mm-hmm. then I wouldn't be able to get in a workout, you know, and that would be oh I need to get in X amount of sets, I need to warm up, I need it just had a whole list of things, and I realized with strong first and kettlebell training that most of the time you're at a, like a Anywhere from a sixty to eighty percent effort level, and it could be twenty minutes. And mm-hmm. as Lee said, that twenty minutes is a game changer. It's a mm-hmm. game changer in how the rest of your day goes. And if it is in the end of the day, you're going to sleep better. Uh, if it's in the beginning of the day, 
you have a better outlook. Mm-hmm. It's in the middle of the day, you have a little bit of a boost, and whatever it is, but um, the discipline. Yeah, and it carries over to rehab. So if we could pass that skill on to patients, then they can help themselves better. And that, that's the biggest thing that I think across the board people say, why they don't, they don't do the recommended movements, their exercises, things like that, is the lack of time. And so if, if you can help someone kind of chisel out there's always time there, there's, there's always, always time. time we make time we make time we we, we prior, you know i myself i'm i'm in a bit of a transitional phase in terms mm-hmm. of managing my time with uh, family business educate the whole it's tough but when i start to quote complain about time and mm-hmm. oh being overwhelmed then i then i sit back and i think everything i'm doing is a choice yes. right and most, you know, I don't want to go off on a tangent here, but, you know. Go off on a it's tangent. A, it's, a, it's a choice. So yeah, you could be, you know, I, Lee and I know probably dozens, if not hundreds of busy executives that have families that work 70-hour weeks, that run triathlons, mm-hmm. that are competing in MMA, that, that you, they make the time for that extra activity. And it carries over to other stuff. Mm-hmm. That investment in yourself carries over to your ability as a therapist or as a trainer to give it back right and um yeah set the time lee and i could go for a long (laughs) we could go for a while on this but it it really it really is a game changer i mean if you could think back to the days where you quote you felt you connected with a lot of patients you just know you made a positive impact and you look back at what you did to you for yourself Mm -hmm. i'm sure there's a correlation and i myself the days that I'm, quote, checked out or I tapped out or I, I said, oh, I'm not going to do this and I'm going to do that. I'm going to stay up a little later. It affected certain outcomes. Right. Um, and the reverse is also true. But, you know, we're not perfect, but. It's a learning yeah, experience. A learning, yeah. If you don't even sit and try, then that's a really uh, sad story because that that is rehabbing from an injury is probably the, one of the most challenging things you could ever do because let, let's even say you've invested in a sport or an activity and then you get injured right mm. that that's probably one of the hardest things you could do with they've done research on to the think about that man uh, no but they they have, they've done research on um asking athletes whether it was an MMA jiu-jitsu i think it was like what what is the one thing that uh has taken you out of uh that activity i think it was jujitsu and so they gave you options they said uh, family time injury uh, and i can't remember what the other one was but uh the highest percentage was an injury so that had that literally puts the most athletes out away from their activity and if you can give someone the tools that they can uh help themselves through that injury in a progressed systematic fashion through discipline through that self-management of time that is a skill like that is something that we should be doing all the time and a lot of people don't they you know it it's a it's a sad thing there's only a small percentage of people who will will help a patient go through that or help uh, a client go through you that. know not um I'm, I'm trying to scroll down to see mm. how this fits into our deal here but <laughs> i was asked a question a movement practice let's think of movement systems and yeah. what we'll call jujitsu a Movement system. A movement system. But a gentleman that's new to jujitsu um, at Henzo's asked me today, you know, it was a new guy that I was rolling with on Saturday. He was, like, um, training with on Saturday. He said, um, hey, man, how often do you come? And I was like, well, you know, if I'm average twice, I'd like to do three or four. Uh, he was like, wow, man, um, this is my fourth or fifth day. 
I don't know how one continues without getting injured. Because hmm. I'm, you know, he had like tape on his finger, and I was like, well, you know, tread slowly. You know, I, he asked me a question on Saturday. He said, should I go 80 or 100%? Hmm. And I said, you know, choose what you want to do, but know that there's a rest, the rest of the class is behind us. Right. So I reverted back to the question. I said, you, you asked me about 80 to 100. You're training right now. So. 100 is not sustainable, and no. you're just learning the movement. Yeah. So he said, well, I don't understand how one could stay here and not be injured. And I said, well, I think it's a lot to do with recovery. I think it has a lot to do with knowing yourself. You don't mind me asking? He's like, yeah, I'm, I'm about to turn 40 in a week, and I, I just gave him a handshake. I said, hey, <laughs> I'm 42 weeks right now. And I was like, listen, it's 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 not easy, but at the mm. same token, you it puts everything in your life in perspective. Right. Whatever I eat, whatever I drink, how much I sleep, stress levels, um, mobility, workouts out. That's another fallacy, unfortunate fallacy. A, a common trend amongst um, jujitsu practitioners is it's so addicting. They love it so much. That's all they do. Right. And um, Lee and I have seen or overheard. You know, a lot of guys in the locker room, and I, I heard, a, you know, today I heard, oh, you know, my wrist. My, you know, you just hear these, these things, and it, got everyone's got something. And, and mm -hmm. it, it is somewhat, it's a nev, it's a, you can't go into a jiu-jitsu without being unscathed, but at that, you could mitigate the risk by what you do outside of the mat, off right. the mat. And just to do a, I don't usually like to do this in a sense where I compare my own situation to and try to make that a general generalization, but I'm just going to give my own experience. I, I, it'll, it's, it's already been a year of doing jujitsu for myself and wow. knock on wood, I haven't had an injury, uh, but I've, I've, I've gotten hurt a dozens and dozens of times and can name almost every joint in my body that's gotten hurt, but what I've done, and Eric and I talk about this a lot, is what he just said, is mitigate that damage and and i've set up a schedule for myself that's based on my work based on what i have available to me and then giving myself enough time so i'll do two days on one day off two days on and then i get to choose that other quote fourth day that's an ideal week now some days i'll go only twice in a week because of either uh scheduling and or i'm feeling run down and that's one thing you have to get uh in tuned with in know thyself <laughs> yeah and that's the mightiest thing you could do there's a great quote by bruce lee i don't want to butcher it right now but i'll see if i can look it up but um knowing thyself especially when it comes to what you can handle that is that's huge um and we're using we're using jujitsu as a um as movie. an example but that, that this goes for a runner uh crossfitter um Ten, whatever whatever movement you do, yoga, whatever whatever you're into, mm -hmm. if you kind of know the machine, your body, uh, which is not a machine, but <laughs> in many cases... Uh, it's an ecosystem. It's an ecosystem. Know yes. your system. Yes. And um, you got to be in tune because if you're not, it will, it will take you out of tune quite That's quickly. <laughs> That's right. There's actually a quote. There's two quotes that I love. Uh, w one is Richard Nimoy. And the reason why I, I like Richard, uh, I'm sorry, Richard Nimoy, my God. Leonard Nimoy, my God. <laughs> I'm so sorry um, for all you Star Trek fans. I, 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 I wasn't a huge fan of Star Trek, but I love Leonard Nimoy because he is from Boston originally, and he had a really interesting life. But he had this great quote. It says, I may not be the fastest. I may not be the tallest or the strongest. I may not be the best or the brightest, but one thing I can do better than anybody else, 
that that is to be me. And I thought that was fantastic. It was it's kind of a um, a uh, a little passage about uh, self um, awareness and everything. And this is by Bruce Lee, of course. Self conquest is the greatest victories, greatest of victories. Mighty is he who conquers himself. That's huge, and, and it's a lifelong process. You know, it's not going to happen tomorrow. And in endeavor, it, I don't think it stops. I, no, it I think it's that's one thing. A lot of in our society, because we have everything handed to us in a sense that we have social media, we have instant gratification, we have food, we got food, we got pills, <laughs> we we got things <laughs> that can that can change instantly. Right. We think steroids. We, <laughs> uh, I mean, whatever floats your boat, we do have. Yeah, and, and that's not the case in life. Everything takes time. I watched this movie over the weekend with my girlfriend, uh, Doctor Strange, the Marvel movie. No, I didn't see it. Oh, it was awesome. It, it, but there was a great line in there where um, you have this doctor who's this really famous neurosurgeon. He injures his hands. I won't go into extreme detail, but he can't get better. He's had like a, a, a shit ton of surgeries, not getting better. His hands are shaking. He can't do surgery anymore, so he seeks um, – he goes far and wide to find the solution. He ends up uh, across the world – um, I think in Kathmandu or something, and he, he meets with this prophet who was going to teach him how to find himself and give him more power and stuff like that. And so he starts to get frustrated when he can't immediately start to do things. And the, the person's like, what did you do to become a doctor? Like, how did you become a doctor? And he's like, I went to medical school and I trained and I studied for years. And she's like, you think this is anything different? And it's true. Everything, everything, rehab process, uh, strength training, jujitsu. <laughs> it's yeah, a huge man. process. But in terms of our industry, right, right, right. Going, yeah, this is good. We got on this. Sorry, uh, tangents. We like tangents. Yeah, this 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 is a tangential uh, podcast. But no, it's it's all things that I think are very relevant yeah. to where the fitness, where the industry is going, both in fitness and in rehab. Rehab. For uh, one of the things that we touched upon in our previous episodes uh, was misinformation in. Yes. Uh, as I quoted Mike Boyle, we are victims of misinformation, especially in the fitness industry. The same thing goes for, I think, rehab, because uh, a lot of what's out there right now is not in the mainstream for helping yourself in an efficient way. So, like, if I were to say there is now enough evidence to show for degenerative meniscal tears, there surgeries for degenerative meniscal tears are no better than sham surgeries. So if you don't know what a sham surgery is, that means, and they're not done in the United States, these these studies, just because it's against the law. The law here. It's horrible. You sign up for a meniscal <laughs> surgery, they make a hole in your knee. And then you wake up. You're and like, oh. they knock you out, which is crazy. That's a risky. Anesthesia. That's, yeah. that's crazy. You could die on the table for, for, for research. So, uh, yes, I mean, now they have enough evidence to say with this type of meniscal injury, not all meniscal injuries, but this type, uh, it's no better than sham. So that's that's really big because uh, one of our biggest orthopedic surgeries in the United States has been shown to be this surgery, uh, meniscectomy, when it comes to um, uh, a, a degenerative meniscal tear. Because let's say one is older, they're in their 50s, they're in their 60s, maybe even 70s, they get knee pain. They go to the doctor, they get an MRI, they get x-rays that says, oh, you have a, a meniscal tear, and that's what they hear. But in reality, it's it's a, quote, normal part of aging, and they would do better in the sense of, again, that cost-benefit analysis. They're going to spend their time more wisely going through the conservative route, so going to see a high-value physical therapist 
and or any other um, rehabilitation specialist in, in what they want. Yeah, that was an interesting article. The other one I, I read and um, that you sent over to me was the percentages of abnormal um, lumbar oh, yeah. the, the scans. Oh, that yeah, was really that was really cool, and it was it was uh, it actually had charts on the percentages of the population of this study mm-hmm. that had uh, dege- disc degeneration. So I'm looking at this. Uh, oh, you got it. Okay, cool. Yeah. So this was really interesting. So disc, oh, disc, <laughs> this, no mic. So at 20, 37% of the population, or at least these patients, asymptomatic patients. That's huge, by the way. I do want to point out that this is all asymptomatic patients, and now they're looking at correlations. Now, correlations do not mean causation. And so they couldn't even find a correlation, never mind a causation. That, that's kind of important to know when you, re, when you hear these numbers. I remember I showed this to a patient. He was like, oh, that's not bad. But if you understand research, th- these were significant. So, so. And how many people, I'm sorry, how many people were in this? They, it was a huge wow, systematic 3, review. So yeah, it was a 3, review of a bunch of articles. 35 articles reporting for 3,110 individuals mm-hmm. met the study criteria. So... Somewhere in that ballpark. So we go down to the chart they created. And um, age-specific prevalence estimates of degenerative spine imaging finding on asymptomatic patients. So at 20, 37%. At 30, 52%. And just uh, know which each each means. So the first one, the 37% was disc degeneration. I mean, that's incredible. 20 years old, uh, asymptomatic. And that means no pain, no uh, you know neural symptoms or anything. Thirty-seven percent—that's over a third. A third. Then it goes up to half at thirty. Right. So fifty-two percent at thirty. I mean, that's I'm a huge jump. I'm definitely in the sixty-eight percent. I'm probably in that sixty-eight percent. Uh, Fifty is eighty percent. Sixty is eighty-eight. Once you get up to seventy, it's almost guaranteed. You're, you're, it, <laughs> it's guaranteed when you're about 50, 50 years old. So eighty percent. So the the whole point of this that the authors talk about is that there is some there's nothing abnormal when they find disc degeneration in asymptomatic patients right, right? now the in, then going down like spondy uh, going down to i don't know um the, the numbers start to go let's talk down. about bis, a disc bulge you hear this disc all the time bulge, i got yeah. a bulging disc well, what does that mean well that that's a high number there so yeah. 30% of the 20 year olds from this study 30% so that's, that's a, a third a, three about a third four Forty percent at thirty years old, mm-hmm. and then by 50, 40, 40 years old, fifty percent of this population had a disc bulge. So and then if, that, yeah. if you're forty years old, half. So if you and I, we definitely one one of us has a bulge. So at we least have a few bulges. You know, it's a few you <laughs> disc know? bulge. Now the protrusions, it starts to drop, but still very similar numbers. Yeah, um, protrusions typically. Are correlated with some kind of ridiculous symptoms, typically. Yeah, not always. So, not always, but again, those numbers are very similar: twenty-nine, thirty-one. So I guess the whole point here is you have a person that doesn't feel any pain; they feel completely fine, and they have these quote abnormal MRI findings. And right. and you know, unfortunately, on a daily basis, I hear uh, my patients telling me, "Hey, you know, I have a disc bulge, mm-hmm. I have a herniation, I have." Um, Degenerative disc disease, TDD. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> you know, and and you know, I let them tell their story, and then 
I kind of referenced the this article. This is a very recent article. Mm-hmm. This is 2014, um, which is great because they they reevaluate. It's November 27, 2014, is the study that we're reading. Hopefully, mm-hmm. at some point, we'll be able to have some show notes, and we'll the stuff that we're referencing. You guys could pick, we'll keep a pick, link. Yeah, up. keep a link up to you to reference this, but. Mm-hmm. Years ago, I used to bring this up, I think after explain pain, or one of my other studies, I remember it was like seven out of 10 people have, quote, dis, you know, disc herniation. Dis- mm-hmm. So this is cool because it's a new reference. And um, and it gives some solid numbers on a, a, a large amount of, a, a pool of people. Uh, and this kind of, it, it, it carries over a little bit also where we want to talk about where our industry is going, where we're finally getting some solid information on uh, this pathomechanical uh, model is not as strong as we once thought. And that's fine in the sense that now we're looking more uh, at fear. We're looking more at neuroscience. We're looking at um, bigger parts of the picture where you talk about the whole person. So now we're learning this biopsychosocial model. So we mentioned it before. You have now you have to look at the biochemical changes in the body when you have an injury. You have to look at the psychological changes um, with your emotions and your how much you're fearing movement and how much you're thinking that danger is associated with movement. And then you talk about the, the social aspect of it as well. So uh, the people who are leading this, they're, none of them are Americans, I believe. They're all New Zealand, Australia, UK... Uh, and this in Canadian, there's a reason for that. There's a reason for that because not only can they do uh, or they examine these things like sham surgeries, but they also are kind of their system is allowing them to pursue uh, these methods in the sense that they can go out and um, reduce cost, reduce cost. I, do, I mean, that's a really it's the big. It's, it's huge. It's huge. You know, the, yeah. these other systems don't have the the speed of the delivery system. Here in the United States, you know, we have a bit of a cash and carry system. Right. Who pays that cash or who carries is a different you know, topic. But, you know, if you want to see a doctor for the most part and you have decent insurance or forget about it, you have the money to see a doctor, you could see a doctor today. Yeah. And if you want to get an well, if the doctor thinks you need an MRI, you want an MRI, you can get it tomorrow. <laughs> and if you want to get some cortisone, cortisone shots, you'll probably get that in a couple of days. Mm-hmm. So, and these other systems, which are um, uh, like it's somewhat of a uni- universal health right. system, exactly. they could different. be months, if not weeks, till you get that level of intervention. Right. But I think, and I could be, I'm t- can totally be wrong, uh, they could see a therapist and that might right be right away, and that might be the first line of defense. So, they have to really strengthen the tools of this first line of defense. 100%. And they realize that if that person does get to those interventions, it's costly on the whole system. Right. Just as it is here in the United States because someone's got to pay for it. Eventually, all of us are paying for it. Right. Know? But they're trying to reduce those costs immediately Absolutely. because it's the uh, – where that's coming out of is going to be immediately felt in the whole system. It's not like you know we're going to – pay that amount of money, and then we don't feel that our taxes don't go up or whatever it may be immediately. Um, but, yeah, it's, uh, I mean, the the well-known, uh, I always pronounce his name wrong, Lemire Mosley? Lorimer? Lorimer Mosley. Let's call him L. 
L. Mosley. L. Mosley. He's and, he's and Butler. Butler, uh, David Butler. So if you if you look up Lemire Mosley, he's got a great TED talk about one of his experiences. Great stuff. With the yeah, and just a quick recap is that he was he's Australian. He was I think hiking through um, some of the Australian uh, bush or the outback, whatever you want to call it. And he felt something brush against his leg, and I think he was wearing shorts. Mm. He thought it was nothing. And that initial time, he was like, oh, it's maybe just some whatever it was. It was uh, some grass or something. He looked down. He just got a snake bite. Yeah. And then his body went to shock. He passed out. He ended up being okay. I believe he went to the hospital, and it was a poisonous snake. They were able to get it out. So he went months down the line. He went hiking again, and the same sensation happened. And he didn't even look. He ended up passing out and having like a vasovagal response. <laughs> and so what happened was it, he's trying. He uses that example because there was no injury. It was, actually, that time it was just like a blade of grass, but it, re, it produced the same exact sensation. But it, it turned his alarm systems on. That is what really triggers the, the pain response or that pain system to happen in our body so it's not this old thinking of all right i got my hand here and i get an injury on my hand and that that translates all the way up to my brain and then that is where the pain comes from it's actually you get that injury there there are signals that gets uh, transmitted to your brain and then your brain outputs that sensation of pain down to that area so it depends on the level of danger the level of fear and they're basically just uh, a, uh, a system of danger signals, a really efficient system of danger signals. But sometimes what they talk about in chronic pain states is that danger system or that, that signaling can get haywire. A good analogy that someone once told me or read about was let's say if you have a wireless keyboard and you type in K once and then uh, – the transmission onto the screen was like you get J J J J T T T T T. This is it's all over the place. So instead of having this response where you'd get, all right, let's go up to the brain, let's let's interpret that, and the brain's like, oh, that's that's pain. Let's let's uh, translate to pain there, versus like you get that little um, response again. It goes up, and your brain is overactive, very highly sensitized, along with your nervous system, and then it starts to repeat all sorts of crazy things. Oh, I'm getting pain here. I'm getting numbness up here, and Things like that. So this this is very important to know because then we have to, as someone who treats people in pain, we have to uh, disseminate this information and also educate the patient on this. And and again, as we mentioned before, not everybody's open to this because this is brand new ways of thinking about it. Yeah, and, and that snake um, example was definitely quoted um, in Explain Pain, I believe, the first uh, – First, um, and that's a book. That's a book. Explain Pain is a book by L. Mosley <laughs> and uh, David Butler. But I think they have a newer book, Supercharged. Supercharged. Explain Pain. But I, I, I often tell patients this story, mm -hmm. um, very similar that you know they had an experience that caused pain, and their brain now recognizes. I'll use tying their shoe. I remember O'Sullivan telling us this story but you know mm -hmm. you tie your shoe it hurts your back so every time you even think of tying your shoe you had the same response as the first time that you possibly strained your back right um so you know it's kind of it's imperative to have this kind of information mm -hmm. as a therapist um as opposed to telling the patient that it's something uh, outside of their control or right. that they feel damaged now going going back to these studies of degeneration 
degenerative disc disorder, hmm. um, and, and the choice of words. I mean, we, we're gonna. This is a common theme. I think it's gonna be in all podcasts. But yep. you know, our current medical system, uh, although delivers speed and, and handles some horrible things quite efficiently, when it comes to just the common back pain. Uh, we, I think we're doing, we're, we're instilling more, we're, we're putting gasoline onto the fire, so to speak. Yeah, there was a great, uh, we're both big fans of Joe Rogan. Yes. And we listen to his podcast. Yes. Frequently. And uh, he had a, um, he had a, a psychiatrist on, I believe she was a psychiatrist. She was definitely an MD. She practices in New York. Her name is Kelly Brogan, which is interesting because it kind of rhymes with Rogan. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but she had a great quote, and I totally agree with her. There's this huge translation of emergency medicine over to non-emergency medicine. And, and that, right. I thought that was really great because that overall kind of summarizes what Eric was just saying is that we are really good. Uh, Western medicine is really good at really bad things, right. meaning that we have, um, we have some pretty good treatment for cancer, we have some pretty good treatment for things that are life-threatening, heart disease. Trauma. Trauma is another one. You know, trauma. you get shot in certain places of the world and game over here. You can wake up alive. Yeah, right. And things might not be the same, but you'll still wake up, and, and that's huge. And so there is a disconnect where orthopedics, they're trying to translate that to orthopedics, but that is not the case. So there's a lot of fear-mongering going on. There's a lot of um, the fact that you come in and we're going to look at your MRI and, and tell you how much you're damaged, that is not the case. No. It's, it's more about this is, a, quote, normal um, finding on an MRI, even though it might sound terrible or an X-ray or whatever it may be, but you are not something that can be damaged in the sense that, like, all right, you have a toaster, you put a dent in it, the dent's going to stay until you undent it, meaning like, you know, you're damaged, we have to do surgery, quote, fix it. It's more like, all right, here's your part of your ecosystem. This is some information on it, but you can improve this, this, and this, and guess what? Your body's going to heal it. Change, the yeah. body heals. Mm-hmm. And obviously, you know, we're not, star- we're not like starfish, right? We don't regenerate <laughs> arms. <laughs> we, don't we, don't regener- arms we don't regenerate things that quickly, but the body does heal. Yes. Um, and going back to the MRIs and the reading of MRIs, I don't really fault um, many practitioners specifically, um, only because it's training, and they've been trained to do that, mm-hmm. and they may have not been exposed. To, they definitely haven't been exposed to this new information. New information. Um, you know, they they went to med school, whatever it is, however they got where they where they're at. Um, I don't. They're 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 doing their diligence and they're doing what they were trained to do, but something you know hopefully you know podcasts like this, blogs like the one you showed me uh, this morning, mm-hmm. um, we'll get out and saying well having some people scratch their heads saying wow wow what what's going on here can we be doing something different because it's not you know it's going to take quite a movement to change uh, the current status quo. And that's where I feel we can enlist some positivity in this podcast is yes. that <laughs> we do both of us see the change happening. Yes. It's, it's going to happen yes. extremely yes. slowly, but it's happening. And it's amazing to me because I, I didn't expect to I met I, I think I mentioned this before. I met like a half a dozen new grads who are immediately jumping on this bandwagon, which is so rare because they did not learn this in school. They did their own. Uh, they they said, oh, that's interesting. I'm going to pursue this. And s- some people 
did so much they took con ed while they're in school and they already had a huge lineup of educational lectures behind them that were based on pain science and they have their own website and they start to write articles and blogs this is great I, i think that's fantastic for someone like eric and i where we're not immediately jumping onto the social media thing because we're not that wasn't in when we were a little younger, right, but right. Um, we're, we're I, trying to catch up a little I, bit. I, I mean, I am, I'm in the basement level right now, <laughs> social media. Fair. Hopefully this podcast changes that. Yeah. But um, but I, I definitely I agree with Lee in the sense that, that you, by the way, the people you're talking about, you had a lot to do with convincing them. Yeah, uh, and not even, I don't even convincing them. You provided the information and they made the decision. Right. Um, you them the you door. just showed them, yeah, showed them the door and you brought them to the well, but they definitely drank the water. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that's um, that's huge because it, I think it work. It may work even better that there's somewhat of a clean slate as opposed to the the back and forth, the back and forth, or the older or, or someone that's been entrenched yeah. in the old system in the old and that's uh, going to be perspective. That's going to be hard. I feel like uh, we. we uh, um, the, some of the clinicians that we mentioned before who are living in the olden times, it, it's going to be hard. If this starts to gain traction, which it will, it might take that long time, but it's going to be tough for them when they actually get patients like, hey, listen, I read this article, and that ultrasound, what is it actually doing? Like you, you said, it's it's healing, it's you know pulsating and healing my tissues and stuff like that, but they said that's not what it's doing. That's you know research and science and um, so it, it's it's going to be interesting, and um, the common course uh, there's there's a lot of clinicians who talk about this, but when they do research on how mind uh, sorry how um, shifts occur in medicine, they say on average they it's amazing that they've done research on this because it's it's ironic in my opinion they've done research on how things change in research. And how things change things, uh, on a mainstream. Research on research, huh? <laughs> right. oh my God. It takes about 17 years. So the, the example they used is uh, when you had a stomach ulcer, and there was an, an initial idea of what a stomach ulcer was, and then that took this amount of time for it to change and actually show that this actually happened. Um, that was one example, and then there's a bunch of others. So, um, yeah, I mean, 17 years, it's been quite a long time, but in my opinion, it really hasn't scratched our mainstream media because there's a lot of um uh what's the word but they're they're conflicted because they're supported by some there's of the a, people who want to push the other stuff forward there's a you know there is a vested interest mm. a very large financial interest in keeping the status quo yeah but as we all know just by picking up the paper it's unsustainable 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 and going back you know across the board whether that's in the private sector, Medicare, Medicaid, mm-hmm. you know, healthcare in the United States right now is is, is about to explode. Yeah. And I don't, you know, no one really knows. I mean, I, I remember being in graduate school with Lee and, and remember Rami. And Rami, a classmate of ours, his, his parents were in the, um, with the, our doctors or were doctors or our doctors. And they, you know, we were talking to Rami, what's going on? with uh, Obamacare, and he was like, well, my parents said it's going to be a while. It's going to take at least four to five years, but, you know, something will change then. And mm-hmm. here we are 10 years later-ish, and um, and still we're in the same state of, well, something's going to happen. Something's got to happen. But we don't know. And, and 
even you know two years ago I said oh you know constantly kind of waiting for something to happen mm-hmm. and that goes back to creating your own path you know right. w- regardless of whether the system will change or not I think it's imperative that as individuals clinicians we make that change yeah. um, and we spread you know we spread this not only to colleagues and colleagues but also patients as well in a in a, in a way that's um, diplomatic and obviously diplomatic to the other parties at interest. I don't think they're, I hope not. I haven't come across, at least recently, uh, clinicians or let's say even medical doctors that are purposefully misleading, purposefully misleading their patients. That's mm-hmm. a whole other top. That, yeah, that, yeah. I, that I, But um, some are doing a good job of just <laughs> continually. Status quo. Yeah, status quo. Yeah, and I do, I do, I would encourage um, all the, if there's any new grads listening to this or about to graduate PT school, it is important to be on this path of continuing education, but it's also important to uh, learn as much as you can about the system part of it, meaning that uh, I didn't do enough when I got out of school to get uh, all the information I needed in network versus out of network what it means for a usual and customary rate or a reasonable customary rate. Um, all those things are super important because I do believe that it, if we don't continually focus on the business aspect of it yes. in yes. school, then our field will keep having these problems. It doesn't matter what legislation is passed. It doesn't matter what a national, whatever it is, tries to support. It's actually about the people coming out of school and what they're going to push forward in terms of care and that's going to set the tone because we've learned, unfortunately, it's really it's more it's just a, it's just a reality. It's the the lobbying power and money, um, the amount of money that gets uh, spent into other things that's going to make more money, and usually that's going to be for you know yeah. pharmaceutical care and. I would say surgeries. pharmaceutical is probably the number one lobby in. Washington, if that, I don't even know what Washington yeah. is right now, but it is still the number one, the number one lobby and probably close, med- medical is not far away, right. but I, but pharmaceutical definitely, the number is, is staggering, staggering. I remember reading something that uh, they, it's well-known pharmaceutical company spent a couple billion on studying one drug. And it's amazing, like going through trials and stuff like that. But th- that in and itself, that's incredible to me. They can spend that much money just on the, the getting the drug out and there. They're not, and they're not planning on losing, by the way. That no. that too, you know, that that that's fit into their whole cost structure. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, passed on to patients. Yes. Um, good stuff. Yeah, mm. it's all good. Um, what are uh, we on the uh, on the our little talking points? Yes. Let's see. We got. Um, well, we were on misinformation studies. We talked about uh, mice and cadaver studies are interesting. <laughs> yeah, so I, I guess one of, I always, <laughs> you know, with, with research, it's hard because we had, to, we had to take many years of specific research study to study research. Right. We did, and, and statistics and stuff like that. T-scores. Yeah, and T score is uh, ANOVAs and all this other stuff, and Man Whitney U scores, all that stuff. Do you remember that? Yeah, anyway, so uh, it's it's hard to talk about research to a patient who might not know about how to even read research about the results. So I I I'm a huge fan of the John Oliver show. 
Mm. I don't know. You know who John yes, Oliver is? Oh, yeah. Funny guy. He did the best, all encompassing, thorough review of what research is in the funniest way possible. Is if that you, with the coffee thing? Um, no. I can't. Coffee cures cancer. It was like Maybe. a TED talk. He did like a fake TED talk. Yes, he John did. <laughs> you absolutely right. I sent it to you. It was the best. I would highly recommend watching that whole thing uh, because he's a, an extremely intelligent man, and he knows how to say like, all right, if you don't know about this, we're going to talk about this and make it funny, and, and then we're actually going to show you what, what real is and real stuff. So I, I just look up. Maybe by the time this comes out, we'll have um, an, uh, a place where we can put a link and put a link on the page. But so that that's super important. So when we're talking about like mice studies and cadaver studies, we, when we were we were studying for an orthopedic certification, we were blown away by some of the stuff that they were writing down in terms of what what uh, is true about research or what, whatever we're studying. Tendon studies. I think it was like, yeah, it was tendon, tendon repair tendon. and tendon tendon degenerate. You know, how many weeks would it take for a tendon to heal from mm-hmm. this from that? And we I panned we, back to the references. <laughs> references. And it was based on mice. So on these mice. poor little mice had their ACLs ripped and reattached. <laughs> or Achilles or whatever. whatever. Whatever they were studying on the mouse <laughs> and how it relates. But this, to the average person, every and, and, and most, you know, as you read any, you know, large national paper, I'll use the New York Times for um, example, mm-hmm. um, you know, studies on exercise and brain function and the benefits of exercise. And this will turn people off too, you know third or fourth paragraph is like, although the study was done with lab rats, you know. <laughs> All right. carrier, means yes. Yeah, I mean, I again, obviously, there's a lot of ethical reasons why we can't be doing these experiments on people. Right. But... All you know, in all, you should know the grain difference. Grain of salt. Grain of salt. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it's good to know, like, learn. All right, let's say a research study comes out and it's just, like, on a mouse or a couple of mice or whatever. Then understand that that's what it was done and, and kind of keep it in the back of your head. And hopefully they'll do further studies that might relate to whatever the subject is on real people. Um, but that is super important. And, like, even, like, brain studies, you know, I have, I've had a couple of patients who are neuroscientists who work at prestigious places. And when you talk to them... The measure of brain activity, it, it's really hard for them to measure it. They, their mm-hmm. only measurement is, is really, or their main easy measure is the functional MRI. My and, first thing in my head. Yeah, yeah, fMRI. And fMRI is basically showing blood flow to an area of a brain. That doesn't mean synaptic firing. They can't really dye the, the synapses wow. and show. And uh, so they, they say they understand the flaws in that. And they said the only, well, this person I was speaking to was like one um, being that you can really study and die easily is a zebrafish. A zebrafish basically has a translucent skin, and so you can die there, and then you'll get the track back where the thing goes. And they're like, it, it kind of conflicts with a lot of our stuff. And so um, that that stuff is fascinating to me because the brain, the neuroscience, it, it is still like an ocean for the scientists. Like they, they're still tip of the iceberg. Tip of the iceberg. And um, it, it, if something were to come out to show that they can have more intricate measures, and if they were to able to to look at the brain more solidly when they do these research studies, that'd be fantastic. But right now we're we're just we're given this, and that that should be noted too. It's like all right, well, areas of the brain will light up when you do this. They they're really big on the amygdala right now. Amygdala, yeah. I was thinking, I was just thinking about what you're saying. And how imagine if a whole industry just mm. it, it's going to create and destroy. Many industries, if if we get to the bottom of, of what we're doing, so, oh so, my yeah. God, yeah. 
So it would be like, imagine the word, the choice of this goes into language. Mm -hmm. Maybe even some of the exercises we're using, uh, how that affects the injury. I mean, it's, I think the Human Genome Project is something similar that Obama put out with the brain, right? Like brain mapping of some, there was Mm -hmm. a big uh, NIH, I think, dumped a lot of money, and I don't know where it is now, but Hmm. to help with, uh, it's probably not there, (laughs) but um, they're... um, they're trying to understand, and we're like, like you said, we're on the tip of the iceberg. We don't, yeah. we don't really understand. No, and it, that that is one thing too. Uh, we must be looking on, uh, looking at everything with scrutiny, and that's that's why I like to, and and Eric does too, likes to look at these things, and it challenges our beliefs. Like, all right, we once thought this. I mean, how many times have you heard this in medicine? I mean, this happens all the time. Medicine, nutrition. Uh, activity, the, fitness, fitness. Yeah, I mean, any, uh, yeah. What what we assume to be the norm often mm. changes, right? And that's that's key. There there are no little muscles that only certain people have that make you long and lean. Right. There's, <laughs> there's just muscles and then non muscles. <laughs> and, and if you could lean out a muscle uh, and make you, you look, you're, a you're, then you're a sculptor, right? You know. And we're we're different beings. Yeah, and that goes into um, well, we're we're in that world of um, research. So c- research is critical, and and obviously our training, you know, our doctoral degrees is based on research. Mm-hmm. But most importantly is, as Lee said, to be, you know, a healthy skeptic. Obviously, you don't want to throw everything out uh, that you're hearing, but you know, just understand the source, mm-hmm. understand the interest of that source. Um, Many studies on a lot of um, a lot of medical procedures are based off of the medical device hmm. individuals. I'll take a case in point. Let's say a hip replacement or knee replacement. Stryker, a very large company, provides uh, provides these components to surgeons, and a lot of the studies on these hip replacements are often funded by. Striker. Striker or manu- I'm using them as an example, not mm-hmm. to single them out, but I know that manufacturers often do the study. Another interesting one is the cold laser. Cold laser. Cold laser therapy. The only studies that I think that existed at least 10 years ago when we were studying about this was um, from the manufacturer. So, yeah. you know, you got to take that source. Um, you got to look at the sco- source skeptically. And that, that's what happened with ultrasound. So that every mm-hmm. major study that was done that showed... Uh, a cause and effect relationship with the benefit of ultrasound was done by the u- ultrasound manufacturers. And I'll never forget, I, we have a really good friend who worked with us um, at our company, and this individual uh, ended up getting his uh, physical therapy assistant degree, and then he had to do his internships or his affiliations. And he single-handedly did this. I was blown away by it. He was a, an extremely intelligent, he is an extremely intelligent individual, and uh, the clinic he was doing his last affiliation at, he was doing very well at, but his instructor plus the managers were using ultrasound to an obscene amount. And so he finally, um, you know, asked whoever this was to explain why they used it. And, of course, they gave the normal response, like it's healing the tissues, it's, it's uh, warming the tissues, stretching the fascia, breaking up adhesions, all this other crap. And mm-hmm. he was like, well, that has been shown to be not true. 
And he was like, what are you talking about? There's so much evidence to show that this is what it's doing. And so this, uh, our friend asked him to bring forward the, the research article. And sure enough, the next day, this uh, individual brought forward the research article. And he didn't even read the article. He went down to the end at each one, and he highlighted the company that did the research article. And they were each by the same company that they had the, the ultrasound um, in that clinic. And so a couple of days passed. They apparently got rid of all of the ultrasounds. Wow, that's so great. Huh? I thought that was such a fantastic story. I Number know who one, it is, by the way. He's a, he is a smart guy, and I'm oh. glad he's doing uh, he's doing some great things, I hear. I, he is, and I'd love to have him on the podcast. He's uh, be good. super cool. And and this I think this is what could be the future of it, this education is, all right, well, you we give you this information in terms of or, or there's information out there in terms of the positive, in terms of what's going to be effective, what's going to be true, and then you can make a, a positive effect. You had this one place say, we're not going to do this low-value treatment anymore because initially we thought this, and they, they genuinely thought it. Or in jujitsu, uh, we learn it as a naive move, or you're, right. you're being naive. Right. So innocent, an innocent mistake. Innocent mistake. So. I, I do believe, and, I, and I'm... Um, this is my positive spin on things, is I do believe most of the things that we're talking about to be that are somewhat fallacies at this point are done with no malice. Right, um, yeah. On the clinician level, on the on the, the the treating doctor, the doctor that owns their own practice, the, the, the PA that's employed by a large facility... Um, I don't think that they intentionally mislead, right. but it is, you know, our job um, and those of you who are listening that are well versed in what we're talking about to pass the baton, to pass the information, and it's a challenge. It's a challenge in a way that you don't want to, you know. Prior to making this podcast, Lee and I talked about the subject matter and how we would go about it and how to be quote diplomatic but at the same token there has to be somewhat unfiltered right. and that the whole purpose of this is really to to try to change the status quo mm-hmm. um and, and in that you know it, there's a benefit across the board to the whole system so mm-hmm. whether it's the pa whether it's a, a a physician whether it's a trainer you know having this kind of information i think has uh, has large implications to the people that are seeking help because mm-hmm. it, it actually gives them Hope now you're going to have patients and clients that are going to want in this day and age that are going to want immediate results, mm. and and that that being said, you know those people need to be educated that that's not really possible. And if they choose to try to go the immediate route, go ahead, take a look, see how it goes, and see what the the outcome is, yeah. you know, and, and, and test it out for yourself. I mean, it could be costly. Very costly. I was just going to say that. <laughs> Usually these, these treatments that, that could be, quote, um, giving you the immediate result or uh, claiming to give you an immediate result or things that are experimental. Um, yes, yes. So, like, there, there's some good orthopedic treatments out there that utilizes stem cells and things like that, but sometimes it can no. go off the wire like de novo de novo yeah the the horse injection horse injection um (laughs) irap is that what irap there's also regenekine there's also prp you know these um these different um methodologies different treatments uh also have research to Mm -hmm. back them um what they're claiming to 
what they're claiming uh, occurs during the treatment is similar to what we were discussing in the past. You know, I mean, it really, I would love, I'm not well versed on it. I'm not an expert, but they're claiming to do certain things that are seen in one population, for instance, in horses. Hmm. Um, I think Regenekine. Seems like a different being than humans. Yeah, so Regenekine, um, you know, just by the name Regenekine, you would think that something's going to regenerate. Right. And um, essentially what they're attempting to do with Regenekine, from from the article you sent me actually was really interesting, is really trying to pump in anti-inflammatory agents, or so we think are anti-inflammatory agents, to a specific area to decrease the inflammatory response or to kick on an inflammatory response to push it through the cycle, so to speak. Right. Many injuries um, are kind of stuck in this holding pattern of not being fully inflamed but not being normal tissue. And that uh, I'll use tendinosis as a a common example where tendon is not – Inflamed, as we used to think of it as in tendinitis. tendinitis. An itis. Fasciitis. Yeah, these itises that are definitely not, um, they, they take a lot. They usually happen in a high, um, high impact kind of activity. Right. But it's very seldom, we, clinically, we rarely see them. Yeah. And they usually pass, by the way, quite quickly. And there's a lot of misinformation on that. Uh, the uh, I, There's actually this fantastic, thorough, review article on tendinopathies. Right. And did I send you that one? No, you got to send me oh, that. Oh, my God. It was great because they, they evaluate everything that's been done for the last 10 years on this stuff in terms of research. And they just examine the fact that it is incorrect to say that you have a tendinitis um, because there's actually not an acute inflammatory phase going on when you, let's say, have pain or whatever it may be, especially if it's past the inflammatory time period there is a change in the tendon tissues that lack inflammatory markers. So that change in the tendon tissues are changing the structure in the sense that it's becoming a little weaker, a little bit more compliant, compliant, exactly. So it stretches easier, it doesn't rebound, it's not as elastic as it once was, and that will lead, may lead to further injury, like a tear or, um, you know, further loss of compliance, and then your tendon completely changes. So when you hear plantar fasciitis, it, it's usually not an itis. It's, that's why ice and ultrasound don't really work for a true plantar fasciopathy. Um, so when you have an Achilles tendonitis or you're told you, you have it, especially if it's been past the eight-week mark, you most likely have a tendinopathy. So that tendinopathy is a change in the, the collagen fibers. Uh, now your tendon has altered a little bit. You have to do other things like actually load it, and you have to load it pretty heavily to change it back. But the good news is is uh, research heavily supports the fact that it changes. It changes back. It changes back. And also you got to ask yourself is how that that tendon got there in the first place. It was probably distant or pro- distant areas that are contributing to that tendon being loaded Altered. Altered or abnormal or non-optimally. Non-optimal loading of a tendon. So taking a look at, you know, above or below where the person is feeling that would be key. Uh, But, yeah, the tendinopathy, it's a tricky injury um, to deal with because Mm -hmm. of the lack lack of direction. I mean, Lee and I have gone to a a course on tendinopathy or a a lecture on it, Mm -hmm. and I followed up after that lecture. I gave a uh, an in service um, 
an in-service to uh, NYU when I was there, and that was you an interesting. Yeah, I based oh. it on I based it on the information we got from awesome. uh, from this course, and um, <laughs> that's a loaded course. <laughs> but um, but uh, we uh, but anyway, it was um, that was about ten years ago, and you know, full swing when Lee and I were studying just like less than six months ago. It's kind of it's kind of in the same place where yeah. it's this, it's a it's a tough. Um, Tough injury to treat you know, for multiple for the reasons that we're completely opposite of what we're discussing on this podcast. Mm. Um, this is where the structure, let's say, of a tendon, is affecting to some extent the function of a particular joint or movement. Right. So um, this is where you know one doesn't throw the baby out with the bathwater, and and we need to realize that you have to pick and choose. Uh, when to kind of pull this uh, pain science board. when the your perspective where your perspective is on a particular injury well, it can be incorporated too since sense that let's oh, say sure. uh, you have Achilles tendon pain and let's say you've gotten uh, like an Achilles tendon injury if it's intact you'll have it since it's so superficial you'll know if there's been some solid collagen changes because usually it's a little bit more bulbous. It's swollen, um, it, but not swollen. Swollen in the sense of there's more cells there. The actual tendon itself swells. Um, so if that happens, obviously you're going to have some danger signals going from there, or sorry, going to there from the brain because now you can visibly see the the difference in the two. And maybe at that point you've already had imaging, and uh, some of the practitioners that you've seen have given you the information that your tendon is damaged and or inflamed, and so that reinforces that danger signal. And yeah. so if you educate someone on that and say, you know, that this is what we're going to affect, you absolutely have changes in your tendon, but we're going to load it up in phase one, first two weeks, phase two, the next two weeks after that. And by the eight weeks, you're going to be doing this, this, and this. And all the while, just understand that your level of pain is not going to be really dictated by the tissue damage, but more likely it's going to be dictated by the exercise that you, you bring it on. Um, but that should in a sense, based on pain science, reduce that level of threat, reduce that uh, pain response, and then incorporate everything else. So this is kind of a perfect example of incorporating pain science with strength training, uh, collagen changes, evidence, evidence research. Based. So kind of, kind of combining, combining it all. Again, the purpose of this podcast is uh, is that you know a little mm-hmm. experience. Experience, research, our personal bedside manner. Bedside manner and uh, explain pain. Explain pain. <laughs> exercises. Exercises. Uh, <laughs> but um, yeah, it's been a. But where have we hit all our points, Lee? I think man? so. Yeah. So we talked about social media. We got the neuroscience. We talked about horse injections, mice, mice. Uh, some misinformation. Oh, 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 we, we don't want to forget a lot of studies are also tendon studies, mm-hmm. ligament studies, often done on cadavers. Oh yeah, that that blows my mind. So we in our studies came across a few studies that were comparing tendon, uh, excuse me, um, tendon and ligament strength on cadavers. So right, yeah, that's right. It was a uh, rotator cuff stuff. I I don't understand that. I I understand the fact that they they they're not going to be able to open somebody up live and like measure the 
tendon integrity while they move it around, like that would be unethical. I mean, being dead has to change something. Absolutely. <laughs> Remember, your 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 living tissue is is existing in living tissue, and it definitely operates differently after you have ceased, <laughs> and you're filled with formaldehyde. I mean, that's your living tissue is no longer living tissue. Your, your living tissue is more inert, and usually tendons and everything like that is connected to your living tissue. Nervous brain, system, nervous, yeah, your brain, blood. Uh, anyways, and, all all good stuff. Overall, we have a, we have we do. <laughs> even though uh, we started off on a little bit of a negative rant, some here and there, but we do have a positive outlook on our industry, on the fitness industry, and how it all carries over. I do think it's going to be a benefit of how the fitness industry and strength conditioning industry is carrying over, and it forces us to be a little bit more diligent with learning all that information, and we should do that. Yeah, I, on a positive note, I definitely see the bar, uh, at least the clinicians that we come across. We we do have a, a spectrum of clinicians we see, but the bar is being raised by mm-hmm. those who are um, are connecting what we're speaking about, whether it, which which is evidence, clinical experience, and and fit, you know, exercise and fitness, mm-hmm. and just movement movement in general, being open to different movement practices, and not to, you know, as a clinician, um, you may not be well versed in a movement practice, but that might be an indication to do some research on that movement practice. Most importantly. Move in that right. movement practice. Take exactly. a take a class. Take a one on one. Whatever it whatever it is. And if you don't know what it is, Google it. Google right. <laughs> maybe <laughs> contact some other people who do it already. Exactly. Yeah. Signing off. All right. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to a few good physios. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, and Facebook. Follow us each week while we interview guests and have clinical commentary. 